me please in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're making our way through this wonderful book. Uh, we are more than halfway through the book. It only has four chapters to it. And I can't believe that we're already over that, that halfway mark. And really our passage this morning uh, ushers in, uh, officially you could say, that second half of Colossians. So we're going to be looking this morning at Colossians 3 verses 5 through 8. It says this, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. The title of this sermon is New Life, Old Sin. New Life, Old Sin. And I desire this morning, dear child of God, that you would live according to your new life, not your old one. You know, many people throughout history, and even today still, uh, who have an amputation, or they come to a point in their life where they need an amputation. Sometimes it's the result of war. Sometimes some medical condition where uh, some limb, some part of their body has been rendered uh, useless or incredibly weak. Sometimes it's the result of dramatic or traumatic injury whether sports or a car accident or war. Sometimes it's just the slow death of a part of the body through atrophy as a result of some medical condition. Whatever it might be, though, it's been documented uh, throughout history and even in modern medical uh, works that there are many people who have an amputation have that limb removed completely, they go on after healing from their major wound, they go on to have some degree of what's called phantom sensations or phantom feelings. So much so that, they, that it's gained a name called phantom limbs where the person who has maybe had uh, their, one of their legs removed their mind still feels like it can feel it, its uh, uh, right toe. Or if, uh, if a hand is removed, they can feel their fingers, though they're not even there. It might be manifest in some sort of itch or tickle. Uh, it may feel as if uh, the missing part of your leg is asleep. And experts are not sure why this happens. 
there, there is one patient, for example, who complained that um, he was suffering from a sensation of cramping in his phantom arm. He was missing his left arm as a result of uh, surgery, and uh, his left arm was gone. He still had his right arm, but he would wake up in the middle of the night uh, convinced that he can still feel a cramping on his left arm that wasn't there. He would go to the doctor and he would tell him that he felt that his phantom hand was clenched so tightly he could swear he could feel his fingernails digging into his palms. Though it wasn't even there. Now, these phantom limb sensations uh, are kind of an illustration of what it can be like living as a Christian in this world. We know that we have been radically changed. We know that we have been completely saved from sin through Christ. We know and believe that our old selves has died with Christ and that we have been raised to new life in Him. And yet, there is still this remaining impulse within us towards sin. Isn't there, Christian? Even though we hate that sin, there is still this sensitivity, this sensation towards sin. So, the question is that this passage answers what can we do as Christians who have died and raised, been raised with Christ what can we do in this ongoing battle against sin what do we do about these phantom uh, impulses these impulses of the past life our Lord gives us two commands to follow as we seek to live out this new life and it, th these are the two points of our outline this morning one is to starve your sin and two is to sit, set sin aside starve your sin and set sin aside these are from the two commands that are in our passage the first one is in uh, verse five consider the members of your earthly body as dead that's the idea of starving your sin and the second one is in verse eight now you also lay them all aside. Starve your sin and set sin aside. Now first of all, we want to learn about how we can starve our sin. This comes again from verse 5 and 6. In verse 5 and 6, Christ commands his followers to be putting sin to death. If the believer is to truly enjoy his or her relationship with God to a greater degree, and this is, by the way, what the false teachers of Colossae were promising but couldn't deliver on, for the true believer, if we are to experience and enjoy a greater and, and more intimate relationship with God, Paul says part of this is that you must be actively killing sin in your life. And the reality is that this is only possible because in Christ, the Christian has died to sin. 
We see that in the first word of our passage, verse 5. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and he gives the list of sins. Therefore, connects these commands of uh, starving your sin and setting sin aside. It, com- it connects these commands to the realities of the gospel. It's, it's an important hinge that we need to take a moment to reflect upon. As I mentioned um, at the beginning of our time this morning, the first half of this book is what we've been going through, and now we're kind of being ushered into the second half of the book, which is filled with commands and prohibitions, and I guess very practical about how we ought to act and how we ought to speak as, a, as fellow believers within the church. It goes into the roles of wives and husbands and fathers and parents and children, uh, slaves and masters or workers and employees, you could say. And it goes into the, the ministry of the church and, and the work of the kingdom. Some very practical things are on the second half of this book. But we need to not lose sight of the reality that Paul has been spending the whole first half of this book explaining why the second half is possible. If you read through the book or the letter of Colossians, it could be read in just a few minutes. And that was the intent of this letter. It was meant to be read in its entirety before the church so that the entire work, the entire letter could be understood as a whole in the life of the church. And so as we enter into the second half, what we're going to be trying to do is pulling from the first half of the book into the second half so that we don't get so... Uh, concerned about just moralism and just doing the right thing as Christians. But we need to understand why and on what basis and what's the motivation and where's the power come from? What's the source of all of these commands? It's in the person and work of Christ. It's in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. So here... For example, Paul connects the command to the first half of the book. You could call the first half the indicatives or the, um, the, uh, the doctrine. And you could call the second half the imperatives or the demands. You could call the first half the convictions and the second half the conduct however you want to call it, whatever letter and fancy wording you want to use, the first half is telling you what is true in the Christian life. The second half is telling us what must be true in the Christian life. You cannot obey the commands that are laid out in this Passage, you can't do these things, dear, dear saints and dear friend. If you don't know the Lord, you can't do these things uh, 
if these gospel realities of the first half of the book are not personally true for you. You can try for a bit, you can try and be moral and try and be a good quote-unquote Christian, but if you are not a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then you will be, uh, you'll be a fair-weather Christian. A Christian that shows up and does the, does the work of, of God or obeys the commands of God, what is convenient for him. The Christian who uh, is a Christian when things are going well. The Christian who is only a Christian when uh, there is no temptation of the world. A Christian who is a Christian when he feels like it or when he's up to the task. That's not true Christianity. True Christianity is a life that has been completely and radically transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. A a life that is so different as life is from death and light is from darkness. That's the true Christian life. That is the wonder and the glory and and the abundant, amazing life that we have been ushered into as the people of God. If the, if the truths of the gospel are really your true reality, then, dear Christian, take great hope. You are able to have victory over sin. Let's remind ourselves here briefly of what is true in the gospel of Christ and, and bring those to bear upon our text. Colossians 1.18 tells us that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And he, has, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is us. He is the firstborn of the church. The church are those who were of the dead and have been born out of the dead, raised to new life. Christ, our head, is our firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.22 tells us how this was done. It is because he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. Christ has brought peace between a sinner and God by dying on the cross in the sinner's place. And he, and he died, it says in Colossians 1.22, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So part of the package of Christianity, of salvation, is that you be holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Perfectly in the life to come, but ongoingly and grow and, and increasing in essence in this life. So as much as you enjoy being reconciled to your God, Christian, you are called to enjoy being holy unto him. Colossians 2.12 says that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. Our old self was crucified with Christ and buried with him in baptism. That is, when we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, we were submerged into the reality of Christ, the identity of Christ, the work of Christ. 
And when we were dunked into him spiritually, we died with him. His death was our death. And not only that, but you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The following verse in Colossians 2.13 says that you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with Christ, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. This is your reality, Christian. Yes, you were dead in your transgressions, but you're alive now. And later on in Colossians 2 and verse 20, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? The reality for the Christian is that I have died with Christ, and I am no longer enslaved to the, to the Old Testament Judaistic law of God. I'm no longer enslaved to that. Rather, I am a slave of Christ. I am obligated unto grace to live for Jesus Christ, to live like him, and to to emanate his holiness in my life. And it comes to a culmination in the passage right before our passage. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, Therefore, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things that are on earth. He's assuming the Christian has been raised up with Christ. And so therefore we have a heavenly mindset, a heavenly perspective. And he says in verse 3, why? Because you died and your life is hidden. In Christ, with Christ, in God. Christian, you have died. Your old self has died. And your life now is found in Christ. He is your life. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Christ is our life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. Do you see the connection? All of these verses, Colossians 1, 2.13, 2.20, 3.1, and 3.4, all of these verses over and over and over again, you have died in Christ, you have been raised with Christ, Therefore, act like it. It's that simple. Appropriate the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. Live them out. Live that death in Christ out. Live that new life in Christ out. Now, some translations have here, instead of consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Some have put to death those uh, things that are earthly within you. Others, like our passage, like our translation, uh, has consider as dead. Legacy, Standard Bible, uh, as well as the New American, has consider as dead. ESV has 
the command more in an active sense of put to death. So which is it? Well, it's a little bit of both is the reality. This word for consider as dead or put to death, this word is a technical term from the medical field. It was used uh, in New Testament time for what we call the atrophy of a body part. Uh, when a body part, when, when, a, when a person becomes uh, incredibly ill um, through whatever uh, medical issues might be present or through a traumatic uh, injury, uh, a person is a person's limb becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. The nerve endings begin to die. The muscles within that limb begin to just uh, essentially uh, eat themselves away and dissolve, as it were. Uh, and those uh, that arm or that leg becomes incredibly weak and, and it begins to shrivel up even to the point of being needed to be amputated. That process of weakening and atrophy resulting in a final amputation, that's the word here. So it has a bit of the, of the cutting off of blood supply, a cutting off of, of, of strength and energy to the sin, but it's also a decisive decision, a decisive act of finally amputating that sin from your life. So it's a little bit of both. You can see why it's translated actively, kill sin, or more maybe passively, or, or in a middle voice, uh, consider it. Regard yourself, regard those sins as dead to you, just as your brain would regard a, uh, a diseased leg as dead and begin to cut off the supply of life to that leg. Same thing. Let that sin atrophy in your life to the point where it is finally amputated away. So the, the command here, the idea is, Christian, you must starve your sin. Cut off its life supply so that it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. If you struggle with pornography... Don't feed it. Put fences on your phone. Get a different phone where it's not even possible. Make yourself accountable to other brothers. Uh, if you struggle uh, with anger, then don't allow yourself to become, quote-unquote, irritated with people. Irritated is just a Christian way of saying angry. I'm just not angry enough to yell at you yet. Whatever the sin might be in your life, starve it. Don't feed it. Don't uh, set yourself up to walk headlong in those into those temptations. Don't set yourself up to fail, Christian. 
understand that you are but flesh and you are weak. And so you shouldn't even try. If you're prone to some substance, the abuse of some substance, then cut it off. Don't say, you know, I can, I can handle just one drink or just one whatever. No, you can't. No, you cannot. Cut it off. Starve it. Don't even mess around with it. Romans 6.11 tells us, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now he lists here in our passage uh, a list of sins to be starving away. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, sexual immorality is, is any kind of immorality, fornication or impurity, especially of a sexual nature. It, it is just a broad term for any sexual act that is outside the God-designed expression of intimacy in marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that, whether it's pornography or anything else, is sexual immorality. He says also impurity. Starve impurity from your life. This is the idea of uh, something that is unclean or lewd acts. It has the, the spiritual essence of filth or dirt. Uh, it, it, it's a, it is also a broad term that covers any morally corrupt act or deed. But he guess a little bit deeper here when he says also passion. Passion are strong desires. And it's usually, this word is usually of a sexual type of desire. And when it dominates a person, when this passion dominates a person, it is called lustfulness. So even the desires, those, those longings of the flesh, starve those away. How do you do that? Well, be careful, little lies what you see, right? It's, it's these old truths that maybe we've forgotten. These old calls to purity and holiness that we learned as children but have long forgotten. Maybe you don't need to see that movie. Maybe you don't need to watch that show. Maybe even just fast-forwarding through it is not enough for you. Maybe you need to starve it. He goes on to describe evil desire. Evil desire is even more intense version than passion. It is to want something exceedingly. It is to crave after something which is wrong or bad. That's why it's an evil desire. We can desire and crave good things like communion with God and the love of God and the fellowship of the saints and the word of God, the glory of Christ. We can long and crave for those things, yes. But we cannot, we must not crave after evil things, sin, 
An interesting uh, note is that uh, this word for evil can also be translated, the, the idea, the root of it, comes from uh, proportionately less. It's the idea that anything less than God is evil. To trade in lesser things for God is evil. Lastly, in this verse, Paul says to starve greed, which is idolatry. This is the wanting and craving for more. Whatever it might be, whether it's a sexual sin, whether it's possessions, whether it's fame, popularity, or anything else. The flesh wants more and more and more. It is to have an inordinate desire for riches, stature, and anything else, especially at the expense of others. You don't care the impact that it has on other people. You just want what you want, and you're going to get it, no matter what the cost. And what you find out is that you want that thing more and more, and the more that you satiate and try to satiate that craving, the more you want, and the less fulfilled you become. It's the law of diminishing returns. And he calls it here idolatry because it is the worship of anything that is other than God. It is to want, to crave after, to want more of anything besides God. Christian, it doesn't even matter if it's a good thing in your life. If you want it more than God, it's an idol. Starve those things. Even the good things. You might want a family. You might want a husband or a wife. You might want financial security. You might want to be able to provide for your family. You might want to uh, have a godly husband or a godly wife. You might want uh, a better this or a better that. Whatever it might be. If you want it more than you want God, it's now an idol. And God will not be challenged in his position in the Christian's life. He will tear down every idol that stands in opposition to him. So starve these things, Christian. Don't give an opportunity for the flesh. And he gives us a motivation here. He says in verse 6, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You see, he he reminds us God's holy and righteous anger is against those who practice wickedness. Men, mankind lives as if there is no God. They're godless. And so, because of that, there there is no right or wrong in them. And it expresses itself in unrighteousness. What we learn from passages like Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the sin and the godless wickedness of men incite the wrath of God, incite the holy and just anger 
of God. Unbelievers will continue on in their sin. And it might seem that they're happy and successful. But Christian, don't be deceived, it says in Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't believe the lie that it's better to go and, and just go live away from God. Don't believe the lie that if you just had this sin, you would really finally be happy. No, that is not the end of sin. The end of sin is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, John 3.36, already abides on the unbelieving. It's not some future possibility. It is a present reality. The wrath of God abides on the unbeliever today, Jesus says. And what's terrifying is if, is if the sinner goes on not repenting of his or her sin, going on in his or her life of sin and selfishness and idolatry, Romans 2.5 says, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Oh, dear friend, there is coming a day when you will have to answer for your sin, and it's not some future thing that you can escape if you're, if you're clever enough. This is your destiny. God will exercise his wrath upon you if you remain a son of disobedience. You see, because there are only two families in this world, the children of God and the sons of disobedience. That's it. There are no spiritual orphans, as it were. You belong to one family or the other. There's no neutral ground here. Just as in your own family, too, children inherit all kinds of traits from their fathers. Jesus said that the sons of the devil are like him in their murderous hearts and lying tongues in John 8. And in our passage, they are disobedient towards God just as Satan. But the sons of God are those who are known by their love and their truthfulness and their righteousness, just as their father is. And dear child of God, rest assured that because you are not a child of disobedience, and because you are a child of God, you've been adopted by your heavenly Father. Because that's true, there is no wrath that's coming for you. That's the glorious reality of this. Because you have been justified by the blood of Christ, you will be saved from that wrath that is to come, Romans 5.9. So we don't wait for God's uh, wrath. Rather, we wait for the coming of the beloved Son our Savior, our Rescuer. No, Christian, God has not appointed for you wrath, but for salvation in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Therefore, therefore, because 
because you are so different, because you have died to the, to the world, you've been raised in Christ, because you have been adopted into a completely new family, because your end is not their end, therefore take no part in the sins of the world. Their future end is not our future end. Therefore, your present, excuse me, their present deeds are not to be your present deeds. Starve your sin, Christian. Now, the, the sins of our past are not only like dead limbs that are to be amputated from us, but they're also described here like old clothes that are to be set aside. Number two, set sin aside. This comes from verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8, Now in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So here, Christ calls a believer to, to leave behind the sins that, are, that characterized them in the past. The, crew, the, the true Christian has an old life and a new life. A time before conversion, a time after conversion. There's a B.C. and an A.D. in the life, in the timeline of a Christian. Paul says, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. We all have a past that we would like to forget, don't we? And, and we need to be honest about those things, church. We, we should not be known as those people who act as if they've never sinned. Of course we sin. Of course we still sin. But of course our life was dominated by sin in the past. Of course it was. Because he says we lived in sin. Our very lives found their source in the things that are on earth. And our, our identity was so wrapped up in our most loved sins too. That's the trouble with identity politics today, isn't it? With all this, speaking of identity The, the world fails to recognize its prime identity as sinners. And so they find their identity in their most beloved sins. And this is why, as a Christian, this is why it is so difficult at times to lay aside our sins. It's all we knew before we came to Christ. Right? Right? It's a very familiar path. Those old sins are very, they're, they're, they're just, they almost feel like default, right? They almost feel like the default setting of your soul. But Christian, you need to reorient your mind to recognize they are not the default setting anymore. They were, they were the default setting of my heart, but I have a new default setting now. I have a new inclination towards God. And when I go back to those sins, I, I am living a false life. But those old sins are very familiar to us. 
It seems so easy at times. It seems like we don't need to try to sin, do we? It just comes out. Why? Because that's, it was so, that's what we were. And we have not yet done the work that we ought to do to, to create a, a, a larger gap between that old life and this new life. So how do we gain more victory over our sin? Well, a major part is to change your perception of reality. Notice that he says, notice the wording, you once walked in verse 7, but now you also. So there is a, in, in the life of every Christian, there is a then and there is a now. There is a once, there is a formerly, and there is a now. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. And you need to convince yourself. You need to let God convince you and cry out to the Holy Spirit to, to witness to your heart. This is true of me. It doesn't feel like it. I, 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 it, it seems so foreign. It feels like I'm just the same old guy, the same old gal. But it's not true. If I'm really a Christian, it's not true. Amen. Ephesians 2 says, You formerly walked according to the course of this world, but God. Right? Titus 3 says, We ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Amen. You see, the, the power of Christ is seen in His ability to set the captive free. Every Christian has this testimony. I once was, but now I am in Christ. Every Christian has that test. That's what a testimony is. Of a Christian. That's what we testify of. I once was, but Christ saved me and changed me, and now I am different than I once was. If there's no difference, then he didn't save you, you see. But if he saves you, Christian, there is a massive, incalculable difference between your old life and your present life. Maybe you've just lost sight of that. Colossians 2.13, you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. From death to life. Again, the power of Christ, the glory of Christ. You want to show the glory of Christ? You want to, you want to exalt Christ in your life? You don't need a pulpit. The, the, the exaltation, the glory, the, the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ is seen in your everyday life. When people look at you and they see the ability of Christ to set the captive free. When they see the filthy be washed clean. When they see the stains of the past be cleansed and wiped away. When they see uh, life that is given to a dead heart, when they see sight that is given to a blind soul, that's how you show the glory of Christ. 
It's by showing the difference that he makes. So how do you gain more victory over sin? By being convinced in your mind that the truths of the gospel are true for you. That's step one. It begins in your mind. Now he says, lay them all aside. Lay them all aside. This word, this, this is amazing. This word, to lay aside, to set aside, is the same word that was used when the religious leaders stoned Stephen in Acts 7. Remember that? Stephen was preaching the glories of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. And the religious leaders of his time hated him for it. So much so that they killed him by stoning him. That is an agonizing death. To die by, think of it. That you get pummeled by rocks so much that you eventually die. It's a horrible death. It's a death of judgment. This word, lay aside, is the word used when the religious leaders stone Stephen and they, it says in Acts 7, 58, laid aside their robes at Saul's feet. Now this is, the significance of this connection should not be lost on us. Because they laid their robes at whose feet? Saul's feet. Who's Saul? The Apostle Paul. He's the same person. Saul before Christ, the Apostle Paul after Christ, right? After Christ uh, changed him. Those religious leaders thought that they were doing the work of God. Ridding the Jews of this new religion of Jesus, this new way. And in order for them to be free to carry out their religious zeal and stone this man, they had to set aside, they had to lay aside their robes, otherwise they would have been what? Hindered from it. Now I can imagine, we can imagine with our sanctified imagination, uh, the Apostle Paul writing down this word or dictating this word to be written down and thinking back to that moment in Acts 7 when all those robes were laid at his feet and there they thought that they were doing the work of God but they were so wrong, weren't they? They were in fact doing the work of their father, the devil. But Christian, we have been given the truth, the way, the life in Christ Jesus. And now we, in the right way, are now called to carry out our life of zeal for him. How much more important is it for us to also lay aside that which might hinder us from practicing our religious zeal for Christ. Do you see the connection? They needed to set aside their robes to be free to do the work of God, so they thought. Christian, you've been given the truth. 
you can now set aside your sin so that you're free to do the work of God. To make disciples. To worship God. To exalt Christ. Hebrews 12 tells us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now Paul here gives uh, this second list of vices, of sins, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Wrath is, is the idea of boiling water or rising smoke out of a fire. It's, it's a birth, bursting forth of anger, uh, especially towards another person. Anger is, a, is used in the same way, or it's the same word used in verse 6 for the wrath of God. But when God is angry, it's always righteous. When man is angry, it's corrupted by sin and selfishness, right? One is God-centered, the other is man-centered. He says... Lay aside that man-centered anger. Malice is any wickedness or evil, and it usually comes out in, in us seeking to cause trouble for others or having any ill will towards another. Slander it comes from the root idea of hurtful speech, any speech that harms the reputation of another. And, and abusive speech is is uh, kind of a blanket term for any disgraceful or improper language, any filthy, foul, or obscene speech, from foul words, from curse words, to dirty jokes, to coarse jesting, to crude humor. That's abusive speech. Paul says, lay all of them aside. Now you might notice that there's two lists, right? One in verse 5, one in verse 8. In verse 5, you have a list of what's been called more blatant sins. In verse 8, you have a list of more maybe socially acceptable sins. In verse 5, you have sins of, you could say, sex. In verse 8, sins of speech. Or maybe better, sins of the heart in verse 5 and sins of the tongue in verse 8. Paul says, lay them all aside. All of them. Whether it comes out physically or whether it's in the heart, whether it comes out in, in, this, in your speech, in every way of your life, in every mode of your existence, put away and starve sin in your life. Brothers and sisters, this command is decisive. It's not a present tense, keep laying aside or keep, keep killing your sin. Both are in the aorist or the past tense meaning that they are seen as full and complete acts of setting aside. Now, of course, we're never going to reach perfection on this side of heaven. I understand that. First John 1.9 tells us that. We will always be, be in need of God's grace and his forgiveness on this side of heaven. But Paul is telling us to be decisive here. Christian, you need to understand that God does expect and plan for us to gain victory over sin. It might not be all of your sin, and it won't be, but maybe there's a sin in your life that you're struggling with. God can and intends and desires and has given you everything you need to stop that sin once and for all, or at least in such a way where it is extraordinarily rare in your life. 
He, he does intend to give his saints victory. It is a decisive act of set them aside and don't go back to them. Take those old garments off. And you have put, been given the new garments of the righteousness of Christ. Walk in those garments. It's not, uh, it's not a nice idea or a principle for the Christian life that we be uh, sinning a little less. What's commanded here in this passage, church, is a decisive and actual command that we must carry out in our lives to actually set aside particular sins in our lives. Now, as we close, the question is why? Why do these? Why be so radical about it? Well, two reasons. One, it's because sin is not just trying to make your life a little difficult, Christian. Sin is actually trying to kill you. As John Owen said, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from it, this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin wants to ruin you, dear child of God. So you can't be nice with it. You have to starve it. You have to amputate it. You have to t take it off and throw it aside. You must be decisive. Also, when you came to Christ for salvation, dear Christian, remember, he actually did save you from sin. Did he not? He saved you from the judgment of your sin, didn't he? And one day, oh, we long for it, he will save us from the presence of sin, won't he? But today, dear child of God, you are really and truly saved from the power of sin. It's a reality for you. You're not a slave of sin. You're a slave of Christ. So when you feel like that old life is still a part of you today, when you have those phantom impulses, remember these two commands, Christian. Consider that sin as dead. Starve it. Cut off its life support. And secondly, set those sins aside. Leave them behind because they are part of your past life. Those are the old sins of your old life. You have been given a new life now, child of God. And that life is defined by the things above where Christ is. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for setting us free through your Son. Thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Help us, Lord, to actually believe it. To actually practice this victory that we have. It's not a victory that we have to figure out and win. You've given us the victory, Lord. May we enjoy it. May we enjoy this, this freedom that we have in Christ, God. And may we 
may we change how we look at our sins. May we look at those sins as, as those old garments, as those old shackles, those old chains of the past life. Oh God, we have been set free from that. We don't want to go back into that cellar anymore. We don't want to go back and put on those old, filthy rags of clothes anymore. We want to be yours and yours alone. Oh God, make us a holy people. Glorify Christ through our life of holiness. May people look at us and see the power of God. And you'll get all the praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.